0: Well, good morning, Storehouse family. I hope that you are doing well. If you are new and obviously joining us online, my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McKellen. I hope that you are experiencing uh, the peace and grace of God wherever you might find yourself this morning. Uh, I want to invite you to join me uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through Seven. Second Timothy is in the New Testament. It's this super small letter from the Apostle Paul. Today we're starting a new series uh, calling it uh, Faithful Grit, and we'll talk more about that uh, as you open and load your Bible. Uh, while you're doing that, I want to give you a couple of brief announcements um, or updates. The first one is regarding the Sunday gathering. Obviously, we are not yet meeting here at the incubator, uh, especially as COVID cases can continue to increase here in Hidalgo County uh, and so with that being said as of right now uh, after prayer and consideration and a lot of everything that's going on uh, we are looking at returning to the Sunday gathering uh, on August 23rd that's a Sunday August 23rd at 10:30 uh, for our morning service if anything changes from now until then we'll be sure to let you know via social media our website and certainly, emails. The second one is uh, I've been talking to you all about uh, our partnership with Taylor Christian School. Um, it's, a, it's a school in South McAllen that we have partnered with alongside of World Gospel Mission, and every year we do a back-to-school drive. And so I want to encourage you to visit our website, so that you can learn more about how to get involved when it comes to uh, donations uh, as we prepare for the school year. From my understanding, uh, uh, Taylor Christian School is accepting donations through September 19th. On the website, you'll receive contact information and drop off location for school supplies so once again visit the website so you would learn more about our back to school drive with taylor christian school Uh, the third announcement is on monday so tomorrow morning uh, on our website we're going to have our discipleship guide available for you on second timothy the discipleship guide is an excellent and free resource for you to use in groups, so if uh, you're in a discipleship group and you guys are still meeting, whether it's in person or via Zoom, it's a wonderful resource. It's a wonderful resource for family worship and devotion. Then finally, it's a it's a great tool for personal study. And so we write all these uh, discipleship guides for y'all to use. And so be sure to check the website tomorrow morning so that you can download uh, the discipleship guide on 2 Timothy. Those are all the announcements that I have for our time. I want to dive right in because, uh, as I mentioned today, we're starting a new series, and uh, it's just going to be a little tricky in terms of timing because I want to introduce, or I want to give you a brief introduction uh, over Second Timothy, and it's a little challenging because I don't want to, I don't want to give you so much history that it becomes boring, and we stretch this time out a long time, uh, but I also don't want to give you too little to where uh, you don't necessarily know what is going on. Uh, so with that being said, I want to address three things uh, based on the introduction to Second Timothy. And so the first one is I want to tell you who Timothy is. Uh, the second one is I want to kind of give you a picture of the significance of this letter. And then finally, I just want to uh, address how this letter is timely for us in the season that we find ourselves in for 2020. So with that being said, let's let's just dive right into our time. Uh, so the first question that I had for you is, man, who is Timothy? And so Timothy is a young pastor who is leading and serving the church in the city of Ephesus, uh, which would now be modern day Turkey. And the apostle Paul is writing to him from prison, uh, and many would believe that 2 Timothy is the Apostle Paul's last letter. We're going to see later on in this series that some of the language that the Apostle Paul uses um, is... Uh, it kind of foreshadows or you kind of hear it in Paul's tone that he knows that that death is, is is imminent. And so many believe that 2 Timothy is the Apostle Paul's last letter written. And here he is writing to Timothy, who he refers to as his spiritual son. A couple of things that we do know from Timothy is that Paul and Timothy uh, met... Um, I think we see that they met back in Acts 16, where we see that Timothy is a believer. Uh, he comes from a family of believers, that his grandmother and his mother were believers. Uh, however, his father was not. In addition to that, we know that Timothy is, is very young. Uh, some commentators would believe that first uh, Timothy, when Paul first wrote to him, uh, Timothy was in his 20s, and now as Paul writes to him once more, he's about somewhere in his 30s. And so he's a very, very young pastor leading a church uh, in Ephesus. Um, in addition to that, we know that Timothy was shy and somewhat timid. Maybe we would call him an introvert today. We knew that he had some stomach issues also in First Timothy Paul uh, addresses those uh, ailments that Timothy has, and he and he recommends that he would drink some wine. Maybe that would help him with some of his some of his stomach issues. Um, and so, with that being said. Um, Paul leaves Timothy in uh, Ephesus, and we see this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and so we see that Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus to raise up and establish healthy pastors, and so that's also a reference to 1 Timothy 3, to establish healthy leaders or servants in the church, also in 1 Timothy 3, and finally to, to help the church grow healthy with the importance or with the foundation of Jesus uh, as the cornerstone. And that implies sound teaching throughout 2 Timothy, and in particular, the rest of these pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles would include 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Uh, and so some of the language that Paul uses is that of sound teaching or sound doctrine. Uh, the word sound actually comes from the Greek word hygiene, which means clean. And so when he is talking about sound teaching, he is talking about clean theology that is derived from the scriptures. And just like 1 Timothy and Titus, as I mentioned, uh, the Apostle Paul places a great emphasis on theology, on, on sound doctrine. In order for a church to be healthy, whether it's the pastors, leaders, the congregation, um, she must be committed to sound teaching in fact that 's the primary value that we should have when we are committing ourselves to a church or when we 're looking for a church um, previous to covid and and even in this season, many people who who are looking for a church oftentimes begin with programs and activities uh, that cater to their their season of life, that cater to their family. Uh, and those aren't necessarily bad, but the problem is that uh, sound teaching or, or theology gets kind of put on the back burner. And so what we're going to see throughout Second Timothy is how great of an emphasis Paul places, or what kind of an emphasis Paul places on on sound teaching. And so you and I need to know that right now that when it comes to sound teaching, sound biblical doctrine, that must be our primary value when it pertains to the church. In addition to Paul stressing sound teaching, he provides examples as to why this is a necessity in 2 Timothy. For instance, um, he tells us that part of the reason that he he stresses uh, uh, sound teaching is because it helps in church governance and order. We see this in 1 Timothy. It also uh, helps us to guard against false teaching. Throughout 2 Timothy, we're going to see Paul call people out by name who are false teachers. And so sound teaching, sound doctrine helps to guard us against false teaching. Sound teaching also helps us to defend our faith against opposition and the culture and challenge. Uh, Additionally, sound sound teaching uh, empowers us to have a faithful grit, which is what I'm going to talk to you about in just a minute, which is what we're calling this series. And so in a short amount of time, I've given you kind of this big view of who Timothy is, where he's at, he's a young pastor, and then why Paul places such a great emphasis on on sound teaching. And so now I want to transition briefly on why is this timely for you and I in our season? Well, to begin, theology matters, that's, that's one of the things that we're just going to talk a lot about in this letter. Theology matters because the word of God matters. And the concern right now for the church in America, which applies to us, the, chur- the, the concern right now is that we don't take God's word seriously because we don't take God seriously. And the truth is, you and I need to be theologians. We need uh, pastors to be theologians. We need parents to be theologians. We need students to to be theologians. We need brothers and sisters and uncles and cousins to be theologians. This letter matters because Christ matters. You see, the gospel is always at stake in every generation, just like the time that we are in right now. Therefore, we must have a rich understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus does for sinners according to his grace and mercy. Simply put, we need theologians. We need to be better theologians. I had um, a family once tell me that uh, they said, We understand, man, we love Storehouse, and uh, theology is a big deal to you. And they didn't really say much uh, in an effort to elaborate, but what that comment suggested was that I hold theology in in high regard. And the truth is, I, I do, because I believe that. Everything that we do comes as a result of who God says we are um, and what God has done for us in Christ, and uh, because he has revealed himself to us through his word. And so, yes, theology is a big deal. In fact, throughout these epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, Paul says that that's one of the qualifications of a pastor, that he must be able to teach sound doctrine. However, that also doesn't imply that the pastor is the only one or the pastors are the only ones who ought to know sound doctrine. No, my role, From, for instance, in this ministry of preaching the word is to teach the word, to proclaim the gospel so that you would be empowered, man, to run with the gospel in the context that you find yourself in so that you would dive into the word and grow to understand and love Christ more. We need theologians. And when it comes to faithful grit... That's ultimately what the Apostle Paul is charging Timothy to have as he leads and serves the church in Ephesus. It is what God, through Paul, is calling you and I to have. That we are to be faithful because of God's work for us in Christ. That not only have we been reconciled, but we have been redeemed. That we are to be faithful because we have been given the righteousness of Christ. That on the cross, Jesus bore our sin and in exchange has given us his righteousness so that we can walk in that righteousness. And as a result of who we are and what Christ has given us, we are to get to work in order to grow and stay healthy. Grit is defined as having courage and resolve. And in this time, in this season that you and I find ourselves in, in the surrounding culture, we must not only know God's word well, but we need to have faithful grit. And so with that being said, man, I, I just want to read the first two verses. Um, I know we just heard them read a while ago, and so I want to read the first two verses, and then I'll pray, and then I want us to dive into our time and so this is what god says through paul paul an apostle of christ jesus by the will of god according to the promise of the life that is in christ jesus to timothy my beloved child grace mercy and peace from god the father and christ jesus our lord let's pray God, I am so excited uh, to have the opportunity to preach your word. Therefore, God, my prayer is that you would meet us where we are this morning. That you would meet us where we are with your grace. And God, as you comfort and restore us, may you also challenge and convict us to walk in your righteousness for the purpose of your grace, for the purpose of exalting your name, and for the purpose of pointing others to Jesus. God, I am thankful uh, for this letter, this epistle. So God, I pray that um, you would be at work in us throughout this series that we would be more like Jesus. That you would be at work in us so that we would grow as everyday theologians. Not so that we would be puffed up with knowledge but with that knowledge that we might pursue humility. We might pursue righteousness that we may exalt you glorify you for our good. And so God, I thank you for the opportunity to preach this this uh this letter, this series. We thank you for the opportunity to gather and meet. And so Lord, we pray that this would bring you glory and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be at work in us. This morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with the first two verses, and I want to, uh, I guess, I want to talk a little bit about authority and identity because I think that's incredibly important as we dive into verses three through seven. And if you are new here, every once in a while we do topical sermon series. We just finished one uh, on emotions and we walked a little bit through the Psalms, but primarily we tend to walk through books of the Bible. Bible, uh, and we tend to go verse by verse, and so uh, I hope you got journals, and I hope you got your Bibles ready. So, so let's dig into man authority and identity, and so uh, beginning with authority, I want to focus on verse one. Uh, Paul opens up by saying, "Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God." Paul identifies himself. As an apostle, and I want to talk a little bit about what that means, right? being an apostle came with requirements or qualifications, not just anyone could be an apostle to be an apostle, not only did you need to be called and saved by Christ, but you also needed to have been commissioned by Christ because you had seen the resurrected Christ. And so while Paul did not walk with uh, the disciples, uh, Paul uh, did have an encounter with the risen Christ. Uh, We see this in Acts as he is making his way to Damascus and the Lord Jesus reveals himself to Paul. And we see that Paul's heart goes from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive as a result of Jesus calling him to himself. In addition to that, uh, the office of apostle was for a specific time in church history. Today, the office of apostle has been Closed. Okay, I just want to put that right at the beginning. The, the office of apostles has been closed. After the last apostle died, that was it. Now, with that being said, going back to the to, to to Paul himself, the reason he's saying that, hey, I'm I'm an apostle is not only to tell us that he has been called and commissioned by Christ, but it also tells us, um, It also tells us where or who he's receiving this authority from. Paul says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He makes it very clear who the source of his authority is. And that is the Lord Jesus as a result, excuse me, and as a result, he has been empowered by him to carry out this work. One other thing that I would add is it's not like Timothy didn't know that Paul was an apostle. But part of the reason Paul says that right at the beginning is because this letter is meant to be carried out throughout generations when it comes to planting and growing and establishing healthy churches. That this letter does come with an authority of the apostle who is saved and commissioned by Christ When Paul goes on to say the promise of life, Paul is not just preaching that he has been saved by faith alone and Christ alone, but that the promise of life through the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit has led him to be uh, a man who was once spiritually dead and now spiritually alive. Now, that's a lot of information in one verse. Here's what I want us to really grab from this. <clears throat> the Church must establish whose authority we are under. Yes, Paul identifies himself as an apostle so that this letter would be carried out through generations, a hundred percent, but primarily, Paul says that he is an apostle. Uh, by the will of God. And so he tells us whose authority he is submitted to. Likewise, what God is telling us through Paul in this letter is that as the church, particularly in the season that we find ourselves in, we must establish whose authority we are under. Do we submit to the authority of the culture or do we submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ? Everything else is going to be a result of who we submit to. And so if you want to pause, go ahead and pause. But, but that's one of the things, that's the very first thing that we need to establish. And that is whose authority do we submit to? Is it the authority of the culture, or is it the authority of the Lord Jesus? Paul continues, To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. These three words, which is what I want to focus on, grace, mercy, and peace, are often thrown around freely and loosely in the church today. They lose their meaning because we often think they are things of the past. They lose their meaning because we often think these are simply reserved for meals. They lose their meaning because the busyness of life simply doesn't afford us the freedom of meditating on grace, mercy, and peace. But the truth is that these three beautiful words summarize who we were before we knew Jesus and who we are in Jesus now. Church, you and I need to get this right now. This is where we begin. You and I must begin with grace, mercy, and peace. Not 10 steps to living a better life. Not blogs or books, while they're not necessarily bad. Um, we need to start when, with grace, mercy, and peace. Do you meditate on these words? When was the last time that you sat, prayed, and meditated on grace, mercy, and peace? Do you know what they mean for you, Christian? Do you know what grace is? In Romans 5, Paul says that while we were still sinning, the key word here is still, Christ died for the ungodly. Grace is undeserving favor from God toward, toward sinners as they are sinning. As we are sinning primarily against God, He pours out His grace onto us. And he, he demonstrates this loudly. Redemptively, through Jesus' work on the cross. Do you know what what mercy is, Christian? Mercy is when helpless sinners are delivered and pardoned from their sin. Where, Where God holds his anger back. And demonstrates great patience and grace, and he delivers us and he pardons us of our sin. Christian, do you know what what it means to be at peace with God? It means that at one point you were an enemy of God, at one point you were orphaned, at one point you were lost. And through the finished work of Jesus on the cross, you have been reconciled to the Father. That you went from being an orphan to a son or daughter of God the Father. Do you meditate on grace, mercy, and peace? Oftentimes, when when I have a couple of appointments. Um, Oftentimes, I get from people that uh, and they want to hear the application. Just, just tell me what to do. Tell me what I need to do and how to do it. And, and oftentimes, I take them to places like grace, mercy, and peace because man, I, I want them to meditate on the truth of God and the work of God for them. Before we get to the practical, I want to dive in To who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for sinners. Church, when we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus and when we ground ourselves in our identity, the identity of grace, mercy, and peace that we have received from the Lord Jesus, then we are ready to address our responsibilities. And so let's look at verses three through five. And I want to give you kind of a, a, I guess, a 50,000 foot view briefly. In these next few verses, we're going to see that they're centered around the importance of discipleship. And so before I dive in uh, into what that means and what that looks like, I want to provide you with the main idea for our time this morning. Uh, And then I'll Open up by defining discipleship and then telling you what that looks like, and then we'll dig into verses three through five. So, here's the main idea of our time for those who have been saved by Jesus and empowered by his Holy Spirit, family discipleship is the primary responsibility of every Christian. I'll say it one more time, I said it a little differently. Family discipleship is the primary responsibility for those who have been saved by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit. You and I need to understand what discipleship entails so that we can properly disciple one another and others. Here at Storehouse McAllen, in case you don't know, or maybe you forgot, we define discipleship as meeting people where they are and taking them where Jesus wants them to be. As a result, the primary mission of the church, not just Storehouse, uh, but the primary mission of the church is to make disciples. Now, that is a little controversial, even in our time, because many of us want to do a bunch of other things. We want to feed the poor. We want to be involved in social or cultural issues. We want to establish and develop new ministries. And actually, all of those things are good and necessary. However, the primary mission of the church is to make disciples. How we make disciples is going to look different. But the primary mission of the church is to make disciples. And here at Storehouse, we believe that this is a responsibility of each Christian to carry out. Now, we carry this responsibility out in a number of ways. But to unpack what that looks like very, very, very briefly, I would say that our goal is to make disciples, mature disciples, and to multiply disciples. Disciples. That when it comes to making disciples, this is the command that Jesus gave the disciples to give to the church. In Matthew 28, uh, we see all authority. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, not converts. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them. To observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. When we make disciples, this is our everyday interaction. This is when it comes to us interacting with our friends, our family, our co-workers, people at the grocery store. It's the everyday interaction. See, Storehouse, we also want to mature disciples. In In Colossians 1, the apostle Paul says that, Part of our role in making disciples is also to help mature one another. So you and I never stop being a disciple of Jesus. And so one of the roles that we want to make sure that we're involved in is that we are discipling one another. That we are pointing one another to uh, the person and work of Jesus. That we are encouraging and challenging one another with the word of God. And finally, when it comes to, to multiplying disciples, this is where we want to grow and develop leaders, uh, where we want to empower parents, and where we want to plant other churches here in McAllen, even in this season. Man, we want to make disciples, we want to mature disciples, and we want to multiply disciples. Discipleship does not stop. And so as it pertains to discipleship, one of the values that we hold firmly to uh, here at Storehouse McAllen is family. Family is both culturally and biblically significant. I mean, if you think about our culture here in McAllen specifically, or just in the Valley in general, that when it comes to family, it is a deeply rooted value. So we want to come alongside of, of that cultural biblically. And so therefore, in this section, I want us to see uh, what I believe is an emphasis on family discipleship. <clears throat> I want us to see an emphasis on family discipleship in two contexts. The first one is going to be family discipleship in the home, and the second one is going to be family discipleship in the church. So let's begin with family discipleship in the home, As I mentioned, theologians are desperately needed, not simply in the pulpit, but in the home. Therefore, parents, I wish to begin with you. I wish to begin with you. In this section, Paul reminds Timothy of the beautiful and vibrant examples of faithfulness from his grandmother and his mother, Louis and Eunice. Here's what he says. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt, uh, that dwelt first in your grandmother, Louis, and your mother, Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Parents, would your kids look to you as faithful examples of Jesus followers? Would your kids look to you as vibrant examples of people walking in grace and repentance? I want to look at three areas of faithfulness that that we parents, we must be involved in, that we must consider a priority. The first one is going to be parents in the Word. I can't stress this enough to you. You must be in the Word. You, parents, are the primary theologians in your house. Not me, not the TV, not the books or the blogs, not the programs. You are the primary theologians in your house. Briefly, I want you to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul says this once again about Timothy's family. He says, How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, in Christ Jesus, he references the sacred writings, that is scripture, the Old Testament, that his grandmother and his mother uh, poured in and invested into Timothy. So, parents, I can't stress it enough. We must be in the Word, but we must be in the Word because we want to know Jesus more. We must be in the Word because we want to worship Jesus. We must be in the Word not because not only because we're parents we must be be in the word so that we would worship jesus so that we would be transformed by the holy spirit so that we would confess and repent of our sin so that we would grow in our understanding of who jesus is and what jesus has done for us so that we would lavishly pour that grace out onto our children which brings us to the second point parents and kids Parents, do you dive into the word with your children? Whether it would be formal or creative, do you dive into the word with your children? An example of what that looks like formally, for many parents, it's usually at the dinner table. Maybe it's it's a family uh, Bible study where you go back and forth on, hey, this is something that I learned from God's word today, or you inquire of what your kids are thinking about God, maybe what they read in their kid's Bible, whatever that looks like, do you dive into the word with your children? Now, the creative part is is an enormous amount of freedom and creativity. Sometimes I see parents only lecture their children on what the Bible says, and they use it as a way of instilling fear into their children rather than hearing how their children are beginning to think and see God. And yeah, there might be some correction here and there, but you are seeing them grow in their understanding, and then they have questions, and you actually create a conversation rather than a lecture. Parents, do you dive into the Word with your kids because here's the truth about that right now. That diving into the word and then diving into the word with your children, that is countercultural right now. This is why we need our moms and our dads to be theologians. This is countercultural. Here's what I tend to see more of, and I speak from like this is a 100,000 foot view. This is just a, uh, a I suppose, a culturalistic uh, point of view. Here's what I see more. I see examples on social medias on the difficulties of parenthood. I see constant uh, people posting on how parenthood is difficult and the challenges of parenthood, and there are funny memes being shared. There are uh, social media accounts surrounding parenthood and some of the miseries of parenthood, the realities of parenthood, and just how difficult it is. I see tons of blogs and resources on parenthood regarding 10 things you can do to improve your parenthood or 10 things you can do to. Uh, recover your sanity as a parent. Here's the thing, social media isn't bad. Blogs and books are wonderful resources. None of those things are bad, but I see an entire culture of parenthood flock to the mediums of social media rather than spending time with their children, discipling their children, or digging into the word themselves. Praying for strength because it's another chaotic day. Praying for courage because your kid asked you you a really hard question that you don't know how to answer or maybe it's just going to be a hard conversation or on their knees repenting of their sin because they yelled at their kids again and dropped the ball on what it looks like to demonstrate grace rather than uh, diving into social media i don't see or i don't hear parents praying for opportunities to love and demonstrate grace the grace of jesus to their children Instead, what I see is parents, particularly Christian parents, is uh, go with the wave of the culture because it's funny. And I'm not saying it's not. Some of those accounts are hilarious. I just see more parents worshiping social media than praying in front of their kids, teaching their kids how to pray. Parents, that's that's countercultural right now we make fun of those things and they even become a part of our identity and what that tells us is what that should reveal to us is is yeah we don't take god's word seriously because we just don't take god seriously I've met with parents who will push back and say, man, well, part of the reason I do that is because I want people to see the reality of parenthood. And I want to empower other parents. That's good. I want to talk about that in just a minute. But before that, I want to remind you of what God says to his people in Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and these words that i commanded to you that i commanded you today shall be on your heart you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your houses and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise parents are you an example of faithfulness parents do you dive into the word with your children Let's talk briefly about parents empowering parents. Social media is not bad. Some of these funny accounts aren't bad. They're hilarious. However, the primary medium, if you want to encourage and empower other parents because you know about some of the realities of what's going on, and sometimes, man, parenting multiple kids is hard, or sometimes you don't have the answers, here's how you pursue it in the context of family discipleship. You actually reach out to those parents. Sometimes even a text message will do. Hey, I was just thinking about you this morning, getting the kids ready. How can I pray for you? Or I've been praying for you this morning. If you want to empower other parents, Christian, begin by praying for our parents by name. Write it down before you go to bed so that when you wake up early in the morning, you pray specifically for some of those parents. If you want to empower parents, workshops, books, resources, all of that is good. We want to do some workshops this fall for parents. We want to equip and empower parents to carry the gospel of grace in their homes 100%. In a couple of weeks, I'll be meeting with just a, a group of single parents who are who are pulling double duty, like we want to encourage and empower and equip our parents. and if you want to do that, the primary avenue is going to be through prayer and encouragement. So parents are you are you walking in faithfulness when it when it comes to the Word of God and how that pours out into the life of your children? and in the friendships you have with other parents. Discipleship, we're looking at it in two contexts, in the home and in the church. That would be what I would say for the home. Let's look at what family discipleship uh, looks like for the family of God in the church. If you're single... Right? I just spent a lot of time talking about parents and you know, a little bit about marriage. Some, some, sometimes our, our single friends are like, what about us? Here's the thing. If you're single, you're not off the hook. Actually, none of us are off the hook when it comes to what God says through Paul. In this section, Paul reminds Timothy of his love and his care for him, which tells us a great deal of how close and how tight their friendship was. And so here's what you need to know about family discipleship among the people of God. You need friends. You need godly friendships that are going to encourage you and challenge you and not always agree with you. You need godly friendships. If parents are one primary way that we are influenced, particularly when it comes to how we view God, then godly friendships are a second way in which we are influenced in discipleship. And Paul gives us in this short three through five verses, uh, Paul gives us a context for what it looks like to carry out discipleship among friendships, what that looks like among friendships. The first one is just life on life. You see, godly friendships are a form of discipleship because of the involvement of life on life activity. Timothy was always with Paul. Here's what Paul says uh, in verse 4. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Here's what he's talking about. In 2 Timothy, Paul is going to identify people that have either abandoned him so that they can do something totally contrary to the teachings of scripture, or other brothers and sisters who have left him to go pursue other ministry opportunities and callings. And so Paul is left by himself. He's lonely. And as he reaches out to his friend, his spiritual son, Timothy, he tells him that he longs to see him so that he would be filled with joy the tears that he is referencing is when paul has had to go away leaving timothy in ephesus and timothy just cares for paul he doesn't just see him as a spiritual father he sees him as a great and wonderful friend godly friendships are a form of discipleship because of the life on life activity timothy traveled with paul Timothy learned from Paul. And oftentimes when we read through scripture, we're only seeing this formal view of discipleship. But at the end of the day, like they hung out regularly, which means they joked together. They uh, had meals together. They were at one another's houses together. They did things together. Discipleship is part of sharing life together. Listen once more to the words of of the Apostle Paul to the church in in Thessalonica. Here's what he says. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear uh, to us. What Paul is telling the church in Thessalonica is like, man, we wanted to, we desired to, we loved sharing the gospel with you, and we just loved being with you, that we gave ourselves to you. Godly friendships are a form of discipleship because you share life together. Godly friendships when it comes to discipleship, are focused on sound doctrine and prayer. One of the questions I get about discipleship is, what do I do? What do we talk about? You, you talk about Jesus. You, you pop open your Bible. You choose a book that you both want to read. And then as you read, you ask the question, what do you think Jesus is teaching us about here? One of the questions I often get is what kind of content do we go through? And even frustratingly, sometimes I get the kind of question that's like, well, if you would just give me content, God has given us his word, use that content, use scripture. Paul provides Timothy with his own examples of faithfulness. Look at verse three. "I thank God whom I serve, whom I serve, as did my ancestors." Just like Timothy had faithful examples uh, 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 or examples of faithfulness in his grandmother and his mother, Paul has examples of faithfulness through the people of God in Israel. That what they anticipated, he is now walking in fulfillment. And so Paul's telling them, I have faithful examples and it's from the word of God. And so he's telling them about the content that he uses. It's not just historical. It's also so that he would walk in godliness. Additionally, we see in verse 3 that Paul says, As I did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day do you pray for one another? Part of discipleship is is praying for one another. That means that as Paul is encountering all sorts of hardship, one of the things that he does is that as soon as Timothy pops in his mind, his friend, his spiritual son, as soon as he pops in his mind, he prays for him. Church, do you pray for one another? Church, who Who is it that you are discipling right now? Who is it that's discipling you? Family discipleship is essential in the home and among the people of God if we are to be healthy Christians. It is essential if we are to be a healthy church. So, Paul has given us, uh, or God through Paul has given us the authority and identity where we must start. He's given us the responsibility to pursue discipleship in the context of family when it comes to the home and among the people of God. And now he's going to tell us that we are empowered to carry these responsibilities out. Look at verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Here's what Paul is telling Timothy, right? He's just being straight up. He's like, hey, here are your responsibilities because of the faithful examples that you've been given, because of the, 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 the faithful examples throughout history and through the word of God. Uh, this is what you need to do. You, you need to fan that fan that flame, bro, right? Maybe that should be a shirt. Maybe this should be a hashtag, right? But he tells him, I need you to fan that flame, fan the gift. The question is, what was the gift? To be honest, we're not entirely sure what the gift was, but given the context of this letter, it seems to suggest that it was Timothy's commissioning from Paul to the work of ministry. He says it this way in the second half, fan the gift of God fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. It's not that Paul had superpowers in his hands. It's that Paul commissioned him, that is, prayed over him publicly before the church as Timothy stepped into leadership in ministry. That being said, <clears throat> Paul is telling Timothy to use the gifts God has given him. So what does that mean for you and I? It means that you and I are to use our gifts. Church, do you use the gifts God has given you? I want to look at three ways very briefly as to how we use our gifts. The first one is that we must be stewards of our gifts. Here's the truth everyone has gifts that have been given to them by god and as a result we are to steward those gifts in a way that points others to jesus that encourages and edifies uh, one another in the church and that communicates a love for god and others the gifts that we have been given were never meant to be hoarded or to be stored away or to be kept from people the gifts are that a gift from god to you they're not about you so we are to be stewards of our gifts so that we would use our gifts passionately man the gifts are super inspiring but there's also hard work that goes with them therefore do not be sluggish To the Romans, Paul says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. If you hoard or keep or or keep away, like you, you keep your, I suppose, your gifts to yourself, you're not serving the Lord. You're not submitted to his authority. You're making it about yourself. Paul finally says that we use our gifts courageously. See, Timothy was shy and he was timid. Is anyone like that? Is anyone kind of an introvert? Maybe Timothy was scared of evangelizing and being rejected. Maybe Timothy was just scared of people because maybe because he was young, he didn't know everything. God, through Paul, reminds Timothy of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. And he says in verse 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear. How do we fight fear then? When it comes to using our gifts, we fight our fear with the promises of God. Seven weeks ago, we did a sermon specifically on fear. That fear communicates that something is being threatened. Something we value is being threatened. Sometimes that's our own timidity. Sometimes that's our own comfort. And so we fight fear with the promises of God. Use your gift, church. Steward it well. Use it passionately. Use it courageously. Here are, here are just two lies that I regularly hear when it comes to gifts. I hear from people that they're waiting on God you know, I'm just waiting for God to tell me uh, when to use it and when is the right time. Here's the truth, right? Like if your gift is evangelizing, you need to be out there telling people about Jesus. If your gift is hospitality, then you might need to find some creative ways to demonstrate that in this kind of a season. If your gift is encouragement where you just want to call and pray for people and ask how they're doing, then you need to be doing and stop waiting. Some of you are just waiting You need to move with the gifts that you have been given to point others to Jesus. The the next one is, the next lie is, um, sometimes I hear uh, people uh, say that when it comes to using their gifts, that is reserved for this special forces type of group that is Christians, like Christian special forces, only they can use their gifts and and the gifts are for something for someone else to use or maybe that's something that they've already done. Look, here's what I want to say. Both of these views are are not only man-centered and selfish, both of these views are narcissistic. That's what they are. Neither of these views is centered around the person and work of Jesus. If they were, then you would know and be reminded that the gifts are that, a gift from God to you. They are not about you. They are for the purpose of exalting Christ, edifying the church, and communicating the love of God to one another and those who don't know Him. Those are the two lies. Paul concludes by saying, because we have not been given a spirit of fear, he tells us that we have actually been empowered by the Spirit to carry out power, love, and self-control. That when it comes to power, through the Holy Spirit, we have been given the power to say no to sin. See, Jesus' finished work on the cross for sinners not only pardons sinners of their sin, He redeems them. That is, He brings us out of our bondage. He buys us with His blood out of our bondage, out of our slavery to sin. You have been freed from the power of sin. Therefore, you have the power through the Holy Spirit to say no to sin. Paul says that we have been, been empowered to love, that because the Holy Spirit resides in us, we are now able to love God, love one another, and love our neighbor. That's, this is literally the season for that. Loving God, loving one another, and loving our neighbors. And finally, he says that we've been given a spirit of self-control. That because we belong to the Father through Jesus, and are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can pursue self-control. That is, we can pursue righteousness. Elsewhere in 2 Timothy, he tell, uh, Paul tells Timothy, uh, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Which righteousness? The righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that you have been given, the righteousness that you are to walk in as a result of what Jesus has done for you. Church, you have been empowered. You have been empowered by God and His Holy Spirit. And so here's what I would close with every Christian has been empowered through the residence of the Holy Spirit in Him and has been empowered through the residence of the Holy Spirit in Him in an effort to carry out the responsibilities of family discipleship and to pursue sound teaching because every christian has first been given grace mercy and peace from our lord jesus christian are you submitted to the authority of the lord jesus it's a silly question because every christian should be but given our time it seems more appropriate to ask and it seems all the more necessary to ask You are responsible for family discipleship because you have been called and commissioned by Christ through the Spirit. Therefore, what is it that you need to repent of? What is it that you need to put on the table before the Lord? Is it slothfulness? Is it self-righteousness? What is it that you need to put on the table so that you would repent of your sin, turn to Christ, and go out and start discipling? If you don't know Jesus, I'm just so glad that you are here. And the truth is, many of you have had and have seen poor examples of the church, of the people of God. And I'm so sorry that that has been your experience. So here would be my encouragement to you. In Christ, you can receive grace and grace mercy, and peace. That's a new identity with a new heart and with a love for God. All this talk about discipleship, discipleship is a result of identity. So before anything, I want you to know that you cannot serve God apart from knowing God. And knowing God involves Repenting of your sin, that is turning away and going the complete and opposite direction. Repenting of your sin, surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and receiving His grace and His mercy. Church, family discipleship is the primary responsibility of every Christian of every Christian that has been saved and empowered, or it is because you have been saved and empowered, that family discipleship is your primary responsibility. Church, as we close our time, join me in prayer. God, if if we're honest, um, after reading 2 Timothy 1, there should be a couple of things that At the very least, I'm convicted of Lord. Number one, it's, it's that I do not take the time to consider your grace, your mercy, and your peace regularly. God, I am that person that simply wants to know what to do and what the practical application looks like. And sometimes I forfeit meditating and worshiping your work for me in Christ. And I know I'm not alone in this. God, the second piece that I'm I'm deeply convicted in is uh, family discipleship in in my home. God, sometimes I take for granted uh, the fact that... um, my, my family may be competent to, to open up your word and do it themselves rather than me leading my family in worship. And Lord, I know I'm not the only one. And so God, as a result, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us of our laziness and our arrogance? God, would you forgive us of um, not taking your word seriously and not taking you seriously? God, may we be a people this morning who for for the next couple of moments we would not rush meditating and embracing your grace that is undeserving favor, your mercy that is uh, as we were helpless, you pardoned us, and your peace that is as we were lost, you reconciled us. God, may we be a people who submits to your authority, because of the beauty of your grace, mercy, and your peace. And may we be a people who carries out discipleship in our home and among our church because we see it as a necessity. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. Lord, I miss my church family. I pray that you would watch over them, keep them, uh, and guard their hearts as they walk throughout the rest of the week. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.